Thank you for joining us for our Christmas sermon titled, Christmas Together. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. If you are joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Do us a favor and text Nita Hope to 94090. After you hit send, you'll get an immediate response from our team with a link to a short form for you to fill out so we can get to know you better. Once again, thank you for joining us today. Enjoy the sermon. Well, a lot has changed in 2020. Matter of fact, the list is long of things we could begin to talk about that have changed this year. But I I discovered a new thing that has also changed in 2020. Some of the very familiar Christmas stories have been rewritten around the situation that is 2020. I don't know if you've seen it yet or not, but the one called Twas the Night Before Christmas is now circulating on social media. There's a new version. How many of you have seen the new version of Twas the Night Before Christmas? All right, I'm going to read it to you. It's called Twas the Night Before Quarantine. (laughs) Twas the night before quarantine and all through the town. Not a restaurant was open. Not a school bus was found. Hand sanitizers were placed by all doorposts with care in hopes that corona would never come there. The children were swinging from crystal chandeliers and stir-crazy babies were almost in tears. With everyone in health masks and live updates on their screens, we hunkered down and waited for COVID-19. For into our lives with a sneeze and a cough came a global pandemic and the crash of the stocks. Away to the grocery, we flew like a flash and bought all the toilet paper for our personal stash. I happily went to bed and smiled up at the moon, for at least I'd have Charmin in the midst of impending doom. So take heart and take hope through this curious plight, and happy quarantine to all until we're able to reunite. So I thought that was pretty good, right? I saw that this week. Now, obviously, that's trying to help us laugh a little bit in the midst of what is the horror of 2020. But the reality is that this year has had a lot of mental and emotional effect on the health of people that live all over our country and all over the world. As a matter of fact, there's an organization called Gallup. They are a polling service, and annually in November... They do an annual study to investigate the mental and emotional health of Americans. They do it every November. They release the results the first week of December. They did it again this year. And to nobody's surprise, things were were, were not looking good. As a matter of fact, here's the title of the report that they released on December the 7th. Americans' mental health ratings sink to new low. And as you read on through that document, through the report, you can find it, you can Google it and find it online. At the very end, they give this summary statement that I want to share with you. More than eight months into the coronavirus pandemic in the United States, Americans' report of mental health are much worse than a year ago. Now, I'm sure that report is not really a surprise to anybody in the room. I think all of us would have guessed that the mental and emotional health of those of us living through 2020 is not as good as it was a year ago. But what's interesting about this report, even though there's a lot in here that you'd go, yep, I figured as much, yep, I'd have guessed that, there's one part of this report that was shocking to me. 
Did you know that if you look at this report, they slice and dice American society in just about every way you can, and every single aspect of society, mental health this year is worse than last year, except for one group. One group that Gallup discovered has given testimony that their mental health has actually improved this year as opposed to gotten worse like everybody else. You know who it was? Those who gather consistently in worship of God. The only group, and that's one of the reasons why at Hope Church we felt it was important and imperative for us to celebrate Christmas together. So in spite of all the bad news that's out there in 2020, we've gathered in this place this week to celebrate some really good news. And it's good news that happened about 2,000 years ago that has tremendous effect in our lives today. So if you have your Bible, I want you to open it to 1 Timothy chapter 1. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes really the Christmas story in the most succinct and clear and concise sentence that is found anywhere in Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. If you don't have a Bible, I'm going to put it up here on the screen for you. Here's what it says. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that, and then here's the sentence. I've highlighted it for you. Here's the whole Christmas story in one statement. Nine words. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to read this highlighted portion out loud with me. You ready? One, two, three. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Aren't you thankful that that is the message of Christmas? Amen? Listen, if you're having a conversation with anybody this week about Christmas and they want to talk about the meaning of Christmas, I encourage you, just memorize these nine words. These nine words summarize the totality of why we celebrate. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And what I want to do is unpack that simple statement with three statements to help us wrap our hearts around why we're celebrating Christmas. And I want to do this for two reasons. First of all, There are some of you here today, many probably, who are already followers of Jesus. You're here because it's Christmas. You're here because you love Jesus. And you're here to engage in the celebration of the greatest event in human history. What I'm praying for you today is that this morning is a recalibration. In the midst of all the hustle and bustle of what's going on around us, in the midst of all the difficulty of what is 2020, what's happening for you today, my prayer is, is that we're recalibrating our lives and bringing ourselves back to the centrality of the gospel and the real understanding of why we celebrate Christmas. But secondly, there's some of you that are here, maybe you're here because a friend or family member said, hey, I want you to go celebrate Christmas with me. And oh, by the way, my church is opening up a brand new worship center. I'd love for you to see it. And They invited you and maybe even twisted your arm a little bit, and you're here because they asked you to come. And my prayer for you today is that for the first time in hearing the truths that I want to share with you from the Bible, you would understand why Christmas is so important, and you would experience the greatest gift that's ever been offered in the world, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of freedom, and the gift of salvation. So let me give you three statements this morning. Here's the first one. Christmas is about a promise God made. Did you hear the first of those nine words? 
The very first word is the word Christ. Christ. Now, a lot of people, in particular people that maybe aren't familiar with the Bible and and aren't regular attenders of church, they hear the word Christ, and they think Christ is literally Jesus' last name, right? Jesus Christ. That's the way you most of the time read it in Scripture, just like all of us. My name is Vance Pittman, Jesus Christ. Christ is just his last name. But in reality, Christ is not his last name. And it's one of the reasons why Paul, it's very unique to his writing in the New Testament, Paul calls him Christ Jesus and not Jesus Christ. To to, to put emphasis on the fact that the word Christ is not a last name, the word Christ is actually a title. It's literally Jesus the Christ. And the word Christ is the root word of our our word Christmas. So this entire celebration of Christmas is really built on this word. And this word in the original Greek language meant the promised one. This word is all about a promise God made. You say, well, what is the promise that God made that pertains to Christmas? Well, to answer that question, we got to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. If you have your Bible open, flip all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. In the book of Genesis, we read about the creation of the world. The Bible tells us that God created everything we can see, taste, touch, feel, or smell. Everything that we see in the universe came from the spoken word of God. God made it all. And then as the crowning achievement, the crowning moment of his creation, God created all of us as human beings. God made Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden. The first two human beings. And God created Adam and Eve for one primary purpose. God created them to know him, to love him, and to live in fellowship with him. He gave them freedom and dominion over everything that he'd created. God made them rulers over the whole universe. But all the rest of life found its meaning and significance and value out of the overflow of their relationship with God. It was their relationship with God that gave them meaning and purpose and significance. Let me read it to you in Genesis chapter 2. Listen to what the Bible says. Then, after creation, the Lord God commanded the man saying from any tree of the garden you may eat freely but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from the day you eat from it you will surely say it out loud die so here's what God did God wanted relationship God didn't want robots relationship required freedom of choice God gave them the power to choose to choose his way or to choose their own way God gave them freedom over everything in the world. He said, there's just one rule. Don't eat of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the day you eat from it, you're going to do what? What did it say? You're going to die. Well, let's read on in the story. Chapter 3, verse 6 of Genesis. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she did what? She ate. And a lot of time, Eve gets a bad rap. Everybody wants to blame Eve for this. But notice the next sentence. And she gave also to her husband with her. (laughs) You know what that means Adam was doing, right? He was letting Eve be the guinea pig. He let Eve walk right up to the tree. He watched as she ate. And when things looked good, Adam said, I think that's good. I'll take a bite of that myself. And Adam, the Bible says, he ate. Now, the Bible told us that Adam and Eve had been created to enjoy a relationship with God. But the Bible said the day they ate of that tree, they were going to do what? They were going to die. Well, here the Bible says they ate of that tree. So the next verse must say, and they died. Is that what your Bible says? 
Well, if it does, that'd be a short book, right? It'd be over right there in Genesis chapter 3. Then what does it say? Look at the next verse, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made loin coverings for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Wait a minute, Pastor. I thought you said, the Bible said, if they ate of that tree, they were going to die. Listen, they did die. I said, what do you mean? The way this is written in the Hebrew language, the implication is, and we, we don't know how long, we don't know if Adam and Eve were in the garden a day, a week, a month, five years, ten years. We, we literally don't know. But the way this is written, the implication is that every day in what's called the cool of the day, God came into the garden and he enjoyed fellowship with Adam and Eve. He enjoyed their presence and they enjoyed a life-giving, life-changing relationship with their father. Adam and Eve daily would long for these gatherings when God would come and they would enjoy fellowship with God. And yet on this day after they ate, God comes into the garden. And what does the Bible say they did? They hid from the presence of God. Why is that? Let me tell you why. Because when Adam and Eve chose to sin against God, here's what happened. They died spiritually. Say, so what do you mean? It means they lost the ability to have a relationship with God. The part of them that enjoyed fellowship with God, the part of them that enjoyed intimacy with God, in that instant, it died. And here's why that was such a big deal. Everything else in life only made sense out of the overflow of their love relationship with God. So the very meaning and significance of life for Adam and Eve died in that moment. You say, Pastor, that's wonderful. But that's a very long time ago. What does that have to do with me in 2020? Well, here's what the Bible goes on to tell us. That every person born since Adam and Eve comes into the world dead spiritually. Dead to God. Now, very much alive to sin, but dead to God. Let me show it to you in Romans chapter 5. The Bible says, therefore, just as through one man, talking about Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin. What is that death? Spiritual death. And ultimately, it's going to talk about physical death and eternal death. But, but here, the implication is we all come into this world dead because death spread through Adam. Adam and Eve were our representative, our spiritual parents. When they died, we all died. And it says death spread to all men. You say, well, where's the evidence that we all come into this world dead to God? Here's the next phrase, because all sin. You see, the evidence that we come into this world dead to God and alive to sin is that you don't have to teach us how to sin, right? It just comes to us naturally. As a matter of fact, let me ask you a question this morning. How many of you would be honest, and we're here in church, it's a good place to be honest, but you'd be honest today and say at some point in your life you've told at least one lie. Just, just, we'll just start with one, but at some point, if you can say that, just raise your hand. At some point, I've told at least one lie. Just hold it up for a second. Let me look around the room. All right, you can put your hands down. If you didn't raise it then, you can now <laughs> because you just qualified for the question, right? We've all lied. We've all bent the truth. We've all twisted it to serve our own purpose. We've all exaggerated the details. Let me ask you a question. 
Who taught you how to lie? Is there some class we go to when we're children that teaches us how to twist the truth? No. As a matter of fact, just the opposite. You have to teach boys and girls what? To tell the truth. Why? Because they know how to lie. This became very real for me when, when, when my wife and I, our first child was born. Her name's Hannah, our oldest daughter. And when Hannah was born, my wife and I, we, we had only been married three months when we became pregnant. Our plan was five years, and since the humor that the Lord has, we've been married three months, got pregnant. I was a student pastor at a church, and we were doing life together, and brand new newlywed couple, and all of a sudden we're pregnant, and, and, and we're, we're experiencing this pregnancy in the context of all of our Christian friends and family members. And Christian people can be great, well-intentioned people, but they can also scare the daylights out of you, right? So we're, we're around all these, and they start telling us how hard it is to be a parent and how hard it is to be newlyweds and have a baby and how difficult it is to pay all the bills and how challenging it is to deal with all the changes. And by the time it's time for us to go to the hospital and have this baby, we're literally terrified. We're like, what is this horror that is about to come into our lives? So day comes, go to the hospital, Hannah's born, we leave the hospital, we go home that first night, that first afternoon, everything goes awesome right according to plan. We lay her down in the bed to sleep that first night. She sleeps the whole night through the first night. I wake up the next morning like everybody else has been doing it wrong. Like we're so much better at this than everybody else. Day number two goes great. We put her down to sleep on, on the night of the second night and put her back in her bed. Christian and I lay down in the bed, and just about the time we're drifting off to sleep, Hannah begins to scream. And I don't mean a little sobbing cry. I mean she begins to And Here's what I know as a new dad. Somebody's broken into our house. Somebody's in her room. They literally have her by the neck, and they're shaking the life out of her. So I do what any new dad does. I jump up out of the bed, almost break both ankles, running over stuff to get to her room. I scoop her up out of the bed. She looks at me and goes, ah. In that moment, you know what I realized? She lied. There was nothing wrong with her. Now, we're talking about a baby that's a couple of days old. Who taught that baby how to lie? Was it some song on the radio that warped her psyche on the way home and twisted and perverted her mind? No, here's what we know. It just comes what? You know the root of that word when you say that? It just comes naturally. What we're really saying is they're simply acting according to their nature. That's exactly what the Bible says. The Bible says all of us come into this world with a nature that is bent towards doing that, which is opposite of what God would have us to do. We all come into this world very much alive to sin, but dead to God, dead to the things of God, dead to a relationship with God. You say, well, if that's the way we all are, what's the big deal? Well, let me show you the ultimate penalty of this, the ultimate pain of this. Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death because of our sin. Not only are we dead to God, meaning we'll never discover the meaning, significance, and joy of life, but also one day we'll all die physically. 
Did you know physical death was not a part of God's original design? Physical death entered into the world as a result of the curse of sin? But not only that, if we die physically dead spiritually without a relationship with God, the Bible says we spend eternity separated from God. Because of our sin, we've earned something. That's what a wage is. Because we've earned it, it's ours, it belongs to us, and it's death. I know what you may be thinking, Pastor, it's almost 2021. Are you telling me you believe in all the technology of today that if somebody dies without a relationship with God, they literally will spend an eternity separated from God? Well, the bottom line is... What I'm telling you doesn't really matter. What matters is, what does the Bible say? Let me tell you this. The same Bible that says God is love, the same Bible that says you and I are to love our neighbor as ourself, is the same Bible that says if you die physically without a relationship with God, you spend eternity separated from God. But the good news of Christmas is that God made a promise. Go back to the book of Genesis. You say, what what promise did God make? Let me show it to you. You see, God loved us as human beings so much that even though we rejected Him, even though we chose to sin against Him, God made a promise. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. It says, the Lord God said to the serpent. Now, who's the serpent? The serpent is literally Satan. It's the devil himself embodied It's the tempter, the one that tempted Adam and Eve, the one that tempts us. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Don't miss this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now that ought to raise an eyebrow. You don't have to get through middle school and biology 101 to know that the woman does not supply the seed in the act of procreation. What is God talking about when he speaks about something coming through the seed of a woman? And look what he goes on to say. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. What is this promise? God says to the devil himself, I'm making a promise that I am going to do something to restore, to set right what's gone wrong because of sin. And he says, I'm going to send someone into the world through the seed of a woman, meaning without the aid of a human father, meaning born of a virgin, someone is going to come into the world. And here's what he said to the devil. Yeah, you're going to bruise him on the heel. You know what we call that? The cross. But he said, let me tell you what he's going to do to you. He's going to crush your head. You know what we call that? Sunday morning on the resurrection when Jesus defeated death, hell, and the grave. God made a promise that he was going to send someone who is going to restore everything right. Secondly, Christmas is about a person who came. You see, 2,000 years ago, this promise that God made all the way back in Genesis was fulfilled in the flesh when Jesus came into the world. Paul wrote it this way. He said, Christ Jesus came into the world. The promised one, Jesus, 
came into the world. And when he came into the world, he came into the world just like God described. Matthew writes the famous Christmas passage. Listen to what he said. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Here's what he said to Joseph. Joseph, this child that she's carrying, it didn't come by the aid of a human father. This child is coming through the seed of a woman, born of a virgin. Listen to what he said. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Listen, this is no ordinary birth. This is not just another child born in Bethlehem. No, this is one who came as a fulfillment of the promise God made that one would come without the aid of a human father into this world. And I love the way Paul wrote it. He said Christ Jesus came into the world. The word came implies that he came from somewhere to somewhere else. Where did he come from? He came from eternity. You see, Jesus is not just a good man. Jesus is not just a teacher. Jesus is the God in Genesis who created everything we can see, taste, touch, feel, or smell. Jesus is God who at a moment in time, the creator entered his creation and became a man. Christmas is about a person who came. Paul says, for in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Meaning this, Jesus is 100% of God as a human being. My mentor, Clyde Cranford, wrote a book called Because We Love Him. In that book, he writes about the mystery of the fact that God became a man. It's, theologians call it the incarnation. Listen to what he said. The incarnation is the most cataclysmic event in all the history of the universe. Every other historical fact pales in comparison to this incomprehensible wonder. God has come in the flesh. He did not come as a full-grown man, but as a helpless infant who had to learn how to walk and talk. Think about that. God, the creator, became a man as a baby, and he had to learn to walk and talk, how to read and write. I love this sentence. As a boy and a young man, he studied and memorized the scriptures of which he himself is the author. He studied by the light of an oil lamp, though he is himself the creator of electricity. God became a man, and his name is Jesus. So we're celebrating Christmas because of a promise God made. We're celebrating Christmas because of a person who came. Here's the last reason. Christmas is about people being saved. Let me show you that phrase that Paul wrote one last time. Christ Jesus came into the world to save, say it out loud. I don't know about you, but I'm sure glad it said that. Aren't you thankful that Jesus didn't say, I came into the world to save good people? I came into the world to save moral people. I came into the world to save people that had it all together. I came into the world to save religious people. No, Jesus said, I came into the world to save sinners. It's a word that means sinful people, people whose lives have been dominated and wrecked by sin. And I'm so glad he said that because I'm telling you, I'm super comfortable in that category. We've all sinned against God. But the good news of Christmas is that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The word save means to rescue. Jesus came into the world on a rescue mission to redeem and restore, to give us back a relationship with God. 
Not only so we could enjoy meaning and significance in this life, but so we could enjoy eternal life with Him. You say, well, how did He do that? I'll show you one last verse, Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. It says, but God demonstrates His own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, did you hear that? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Did you hear that? He died. Why is that significant? Because what did we earn because of our sin? Death. Spiritual death, separation from God. Physical death, one day, one day we'll die physically, and ultimately eternal death, separation from God for all eternity. What Jesus did on the cross, Jesus stepped in your place and my place. And he took all the judgment of God against sin. All the death. He died spiritually. Remember on the cross as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He died physically. The Bible says he breathed his last. But ultimately, he died eternally. You say, how did he do that? He was God in the flesh. Here's what that means on the cross. God died. But here's the good news. He did not stay dead. On that first Sunday morning, Jesus rose again. Yes, on Friday on the cross, the enemy bruised him on the heel as he died. But on Sunday morning, he came out of the grave and he crushed his head as he defeated death, hell, and the grave. And now you and I who are sinners, you and I who are separated from God can simply turn by faith to Jesus. And we can be forgiven of our sin. And we can be given by God's grace a relationship with Him. It happened for me in September of 1989. I was a freshman in college. I made a lot of bad choices in my life. Knew well that I was a sinner. In September of 1989, I came to understand the real meaning of Christmas. Jesus came into the world, offered his body as a substitute for me on the cross. He died, and then he rose again from the dead so that I could be forgiven of all my sin, past, present, future, and be given by grace a relationship with a God who loved me. I knelt down beside my bed, and I surrendered the control of my life to Jesus. And I believe today in a room like this, there are probably some of you for the very first time, just like me in September of 1989, you understand why Jesus came. He came because He loves you. That He came to die for you. That He rose again for you. And today, He loves you. And He wants you to be forgiven. And He wants you to find life in His name. Let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, I pray right now as only you can that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak. If you're here in this room or you're watching online, here's the question that I have for you today. Have you ever turned from your sin and trusted Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior? Have you ever put your faith in Jesus? Have you believed on Jesus? Have you surrendered the control of your life to Him? If not, today, right now, Wherever you are, you can trust Jesus. 
If for the first time in your life you understand the meaning of Christmas and you're ready today to receive God's gift of salvation, to be rescued from your sin, I want to invite you to just pray with me right now. Just pray these words in your heart. Listen, it's not the words of a prayer that brings salvation. It's faith in Jesus. But we can put our faith in Jesus through prayer. Just pray these words. Say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that you love me anyway. I know that you came into the world. I know that you died on a cross. I know that you rose again from the dead. And right now, Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of my sin, to come into my life, and to save me. I surrender my life to you, Jesus. just say this. Say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. I want everybody to look this way. If you just prayed with me for the very first time, based on the authority of the Bible, let me be the first to say to you, welcome to the family of God. You have just experienced salvation. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Whether you're in the room or you're following us online, if you just prayed with me and surrendered the control of your life to Jesus, we want to walk with you. We want to get you some information. We want to reach out to you. So if you have your smartphone, I want you to grab your smartphone real quick, and I want you to just text the number 94090. And just text the phrase, Jesus follower. Text that to 94090. Text the phrase, Jesus follower. And we want to reach out to you. We want to connect with you. We want to walk with you on this journey of what it looks like to follow Jesus. So just do it right now. Just take just a second. Jesus follower, 94090. And if you're here in the room today and you're excited about these that have come to know Christ either in the room or online, would you just let them know that and celebrate for just a minute? Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners.